Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. It is easy for us to feel good about our lives when we're busy comparing ourselves with others instead of comparing ourselves with God's Word. And that's exactly, I think, what was going on in the second book of Samuel, chapter 6. They said, you know what, they did it. No problem there. And God said, you know what, it doesn't matter what they do. I've got some concerns about what you do. that rewards selfishness, self-indulgence, and hedonism. Whatever is done in the name of happiness or feeling good is prioritized at the expense of, well, pretty much everything else. Today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares is reminding us that true, lasting happiness only comes from pursuing a relationship with God. It's not the same happiness our world promotes. It's so much better than that. To share this message with a friend, go to focalpointradio.org. Well, here's Pastor Mike. Perhaps you remember Lucy and Susan who stumbled through a wardrobe and found themselves in Narnia and learned that the king of this strange land was actually a lion named Aslan. Susan was quite concerned about this when she said, oh, I expected that the king would be a man, not a lion. A lion? Is this lion safe? She said, I would be quite nervous about meeting a lion. To which one of the Narnians replied, oh, and that you will. For if anyone can stand before the great Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or simply silly. To which Lucy chimed in and said, aha, so then he isn't safe. To which the Narnians replied, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe but he is good. I think the Christian community for far too long, certainly in our day and in our part of the world, has focused so long on our king being good that we have forgotten, perhaps, haven't we, that our king isn't safe. If people have gotten too comfortable with their thoughts of God, the writer of Hebrews in the last two verses of chapter 12 says, we ought to serve and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, because our God is a consuming fire. Have you thought about God that way lately? Consuming fire? That doesn't sound very safe. That sounds pretty dangerous, consuming fire. Now, wait a minute. You know, I know the Christian life. It's all about joy and love and peace, isn't it? I mean, it's not about consuming fires. Well, if you think that, then perhaps you're under the false impression that fear and joy are somehow mutually exclusive. But if you are joyful and happy and loving toward God, and it does not include fear, then you are in real danger of hearing your king roar because he is a consuming fire. And our God is dangerous. He isn't safe. And that should provoke in our hearts a real sense of reverence and awe. David learned this in 2 Samuel chapter 6 in a very profound way. And if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to look at that this morning. It was a wake-up call to David and the children of Israel 
when for a little while they celebrated and rejoiced in their God, but had forgotten just how dangerous their God was. Does that mean they couldn't be happy in their walk with God? Absolutely not. It just means that happiness needs to find its place in Christianity. And those that name the name of Christ need to be real careful in understanding how happiness fits into the equation. See if we can learn a little bit from the life of King David and the children of Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And as you glance at those first few verses, you might recall the context. David has become the king of a united kingdom. There's no longer division. Ishbosheth is dead. The kingdom is now solidified under David's leadership. He has defeated the Philistines twice. The borders are secure. He is now at peace. And he recognizes with his new capital, newly installed as the king's city, the city of David, the city of Jerusalem, the city of Zion. He recognized that we need to clean things up here. We need to recognize and have the children of Israel recognize we're not just a political entity, we are a spiritual community, and at the center of that spiritual community ought to be the most holy object in all of Israel, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant had been placed in some border town near the Philistine border, actually, and was not in the center of the community. It wasn't in the capital city, and David said, that needs to change. We need to get this right. We need God's holy ark in the capital of the newly unified, solidified kingdom of Israel. If you don't know much about the ark, or if your lessons on the ark have consisted of Spielberg's ideas of what the ark's all about, let me just remind you, it's a little box made of Achaia wood, covered inside and out with gold. There are two angels that sit on the top of this, called the mercy seat, that look into the box. Their wings stretch out and touch each other. There are four rings near the bottom of this chest that were used to slide poles through with which the Levites carried this box. Between the two cherubim on what was called the mercy seat, there was a visible manifestation in the Old Testament of God's presence. It was called the Shekinah glory. And this box with that shining light was to be placed in the center of the place of worship, inside the center of the tabernacle, in a little room called the Holy of Holies, which the high priest would go into once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. The Jews still celebrate the day today. And that little box represented God's presence. Of course, it didn't confine God to that box, but obviously was a symbol and a sign that God was amongst his people and that he dwelt there in the center of the people's place of worship. Well, that box had been relegated to a border town and needed to be in the center of the community. So David, in verse 1, assembles a great crowd and a great troop 30,000, it says, in all were brought together, chosen men. And in verse 2, it says, He and all the men set out from Baalah of Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of Yahweh Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim that are on the ark. And so they set the ark of God on, underline it, a new cart, and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it, and this was a great celebration. David and the whole house of Israel were celebrating with all their might before Yahweh with songs and with harps, lyres, tambourines, sistrums, and cymbals. And they were having a great time. This was a party. This was a, a celebration. God's visible presence was going to be placed back where it belonged in this city of strength, in this 
community that had proved that God was with them. This was an exciting time for Israel. They were happy. They were filled with joy and rejoicing and celebration. If you were to walk up to this parade and say, how are you guys feeling? How's it going here today? They'd give you one of these. They'd say, I'm doing great. This is a great day for Israel. And Abinadab and Ahio and Uzzah would be around this ark and David would be there at the front of the parade saying, this is a wonderful day. This is a wonderful celebration. And everyone was happy. Everyone except God. That was the irony of this whole parade. While the children of God were celebrating, God was in heaven, drumming his fingers on his desk, so to speak, watching this parade with great frustration. I had you note those two words in verse 3. They set the ark of God on what? A new cart. That was nice of them. It wasn't an old cart. It wasn't dirty. Good-looking cart. Exciting. Keep your finger here and turn over to Numbers chapter 4, please. I want to show you that this was a travesty and a terrible mistake. A mistake that as you read these verses in Numbers 4 will be clear and evident to you. God was concerned that this most holy symbol would be treated with great respect and reverence. And God was serious about how it was transported from place to place. He knew the Israelites were going to be mobile and that this box had to move from point A to point B. So he says in Numbers chapter 4, verse number 1, through Moses and Aaron, take a census of the Kohathites, a branch of the Levites, by their clans and families. And count the men from 30 to 50 years of age who come to serve in the work of the tent of meeting. That was where the Ark of the Covenant was housed. This will be the work of the Kohathites in the tent of meeting, the care of the most holy things. And when the camp is to move, Aaron and his sons are to go in and take down the shielding curtain that cover the ark of the testimony with it. And they're to cover it with hides of sea cows and spread a cloth of solid blue over it and put the poles in its place through these rings in the bottom of the ark. And all this discussion goes on for verses. And then down in verse 15, it says, After Aaron and his sons had finished covering the holy furnishings and all the holy articles, and when the camp is ready to move, then have that special group, that special clan within the Levites, the Kohathites, have them come down and do the carrying. They must not touch the holy things or they'll die. The Kohathites are to carry those things that are in the tent of meeting. And if you don't already have in the margin there by your Bible translators, you need to jot it down. Numbers chapter 7 clarifies if there's any doubt by what they meant about carrying this. In Numbers 7, verse number 9, as Moses was distributing the carts for the carrying of these various things, it was very clear that Moses was not to give any carts to the Kohathites because they were to carry on their shoulders the holy things for which they were responsible. I don't want it on a cart. I don't want it on a truck. I don't want it on a van. I don't want it on a trailer. I want you guys to carry it on your shoulders. Well, that's not a very expedient way to get this from point A to point B. It was probably about 10 miles from Abinadab's place to the city of Zion. And, you know, 10 miles. Do you really want to hike 10 miles? With it? No. A cart would be better. A cart would be more expedient. A cart would be, be a faster way. We could, we could rejoice and have more fun, and it would be more convenient. We just put this thing on a cart. I'm sure God will understand. I mean, he's a God of grace and a God of love, and he's so understanding. That wouldn't bother God. Oh, but it does. 
And sometimes in the Christian life, when we get so used to the little things being optional, we think that in heaven, for some reason, God reflects our values and that the little things don't matter to him. And because we think the little things don't matter to him, it can be in our Christian life that we start to feel really good. And because we feel good, we think we are good. And because we feel good, we think things are going good. <laughs> and because we have good feelings in our heart after a church service, we think God must have been pleased with our morning. And maybe as a church, we can look at various indicators and say, we will feel good about this, and we feel good about that. And look at the budget, look at the numbers, look at the people, look at the ministries, look at the musicians, look at all. Oh, we feel good about our church. But you know, the incredible paradox is that throughout the Bible, there are groups of people from time to time that God has to break through and say, guys, I know you're real happy with yourselves, <laughs> but I'm not happy with you. As a matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 3, perhaps you remember the church at Laodicea, God had these words for them. He said, I know you guys think you're rich and wealthy and in need of nothing, but here's my commentary on you. I think you're poor, wretched, miserable, blind, and naked. Gulp. Us? <laughs> Not us. Must have the church down the street mixed up with us because we're feeling really good about our walk with you, God. If you're taking notes this morning, this will be the first lesson to learn in the first five verses of 2 Samuel 6. Would you jot this down? Here's the instruction that I see in this passage for us. Don't always trust good feelings. Don't always trust good feelings. David and his men were celebrating. And there's not a person in line that wouldn't go through an interview as Channel 4 brings their cameras up and says, hey, guys, what's going on here? We're moving the ark, moving the ark. And this is a good thing. Good thing? Yeah, are you feeling good about it? I'm feeling great about this. How's it going today? It's going great. What do you think about Israel right now? High point. God's obviously blessing us. I mean, we just defeated the, the Philistines twice. We're moving in the ark. Things are going great. Are you happy? Yeah, I'm happy. Are you happy? We're all happy. But they had neglected to recognize that God was not happy, and God was not happy because they were neglecting the little things in their lives. Maybe there's some little things in your life that you're neglecting. Areas of compromise that if I were to point them out to you, and I knew your life intimately, and I said, hey, look at that. That doesn't match God's word. You'd say, yeah, but you know, it's not a big deal. God's blessing me. Oh, I sing worship songs, and I feel so good. I hear a sermon, I feel so challenged, I go out and do, oh, I, I'm doing great. How you feel about your Christian life really doesn't mean that much. Because it's not how you feel that indicates reality, it's what God actually thinks. And the only way we're going to know what God thinks is to compare our lives to the Word. You can't always trust good feelings. I had a 67 Volkswagen Bug. I was 15 years old, I was given this car by my dad, and I spent time in the garage rebuilding this engine, putting this thing together, and all that really mattered to me is that the engine turned the wheels and it got me from home to school, right? And then whatever I wanted to do on the weekend. I didn't care about every, all the little creature comforts, because you know, at 16, that doesn't matter a whole lot to you, at least it didn't matter to me. One of the things I didn't bother repairing in this old decrepit car were the gauges <laughs> on the dashboard, which had been sitting for who knows how long, and they didn't work. Well, they work sometimes, and if you knocked on them, sometimes the, you know, they, would, they would come to life. So if you're going down the road and you're wondering how much gas you have, you really don't know because you're not sure whether the needle's stuck or whether it's working. And if you had a 67 Volkswagen bug, perhaps you remember this. And you got to kind of knock on it. Okay, maybe I have some gas. So I had, a, had, a, had a, a temperature gauge on there that would sometimes just go, it would go up to like 240 degrees. 
And you didn't know whether your engine was really on fire or whether it was just messing up that day because you'd hit a bump and it would go back down to normal. It was just the way it works. And I learned as a teenager, you can't trust the gauges. Sometimes you can and sometimes you can't. In the Christian life, you and I can't trust the gauges either. And the gauges are our feelings. Some days you leave feeling really good from your time in the Word. You've read something, you feel great. You know what? That may be an accurate indication of how God feels about you right now, or it may not be. The real reality for me was to step out and open the, the, the hood of my Volkswagen and look in the engine compartment and see you know, if everything was okay there. That was the only way I knew for sure. And the only way you and I know for sure is to check our lives against God's word. And I think that was one of the critical problems in verse 3. If you'd look back at it again, 2 Samuel 6, 3. The text says that they took the ark of God and they put it on a new cart. Okay, now our memories aren't that bad, right? I don't need another reminder by the end of the verse, but by the end of the verse, they have to add this to tell us again that, you know, you got the house of Abinadab, you got this hill, you got Uzzah and Ohio, and they're all guiding the, this thing. And, and it says at the bottom, the last two words of verse 3, what? It was on a new cart. Okay, now you don't really need to repeat that, do you? <laughs> Just tell me it was the ark or that it was on the cart. You don't have to say new cart. Well, if you've studied with us from the first book of Samuel, it's even ironic in our English Bibles, it's in the same chapter. First Samuel chapter 6 reflects first, second Samuel chapter 6. And in first Samuel chapter 6, you don't need to turn there, but you might remember the story if you've been with us through our study. The Philistines at one time in history captured the ark. Do you remember that? And God pounded them and reminded them, this is not for you, Philistines, this is Israel's ark. And so when they'd had enough pounding from God, they finally said, forget it, we don't want this Israeli box anymore, let's send it back. And they got all the diviners and all the priests of the Philistines, which are a bunch of pagan astrologers, and they said, hey guys, what should we do? How should we get this ark back to the Israelites? And these pagans, without the help of Scripture, without any knowledge of God's word, they said, you know what, let's just put it on a new cart. Same Hebrew phrase. And we'll send it on a new cart back to the Israelis and hopefully they'll get it and everything will be fine. And sure enough, guess what happens? The Israelis see the ark coming on a new cart. Some oxen are, are pulling this along and there it is. And then it stayed in the house of Abinadab on this hill and that was the end of the story. When David decided to move the cart from Abinadab's house to the city of Zion, he said, you know what? It was good enough for the Philistines. <laughs> we might as well just use the same mode of transportation. God didn't seem to disapprove of that in their decision making. God didn't seem to zap anybody with lightning when they did it. Let's just do that. And you know, I just want to say, it is easy for us to feel good about our lives when we're busy comparing ourselves with others instead of comparing ourselves with God's word. And that's exactly, I think, what was going on in the second book of Samuel chapter 6. They said, you know what, they did it. No problem there. And God said, you know what, it doesn't matter what they do. I've got some concerns about what you do. Now so far, if you're insightful, you look at the five verses and say, I don't see any disapproval from God. Keep reading. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verse number 6. The text says, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen had stumbled. 
And Yahweh's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark. <laughs> Nothing like somebody dying in the middle of the party to mess everything up, right? I mean, they're having a great time and then this guy drops dead. And he drops dead because if you read there in Numbers chapter 4, you're not supposed to touch the ark. You don't touch the holy things. Not only did we have just any old folks in the Levitical tribe transporting the ark, the Kohathites were not researched, the Kohathites were not taken. They have guys carrying the ark or transporting the ark on a cart, and when the oxen stumbled, Uzzah reached out, stabilized the ark. God says, you know what? Mm, not happy with that. This ought to tell us something about compromise, too. When we compromise in our lives with the little things, it seems to lead to bigger and bigger things. No one thought that anyone was going to touch that ark that day. No one thought that Uzzah was going to die because he violated Scripture. But it all started with the leadership's decision to compromise and put this thing on a cart instead of carrying it on the shoulders of the Kohathites. And Uzzah reaches out to stabilize it. And I know you got to empathize with this guy. And I know you feel bad that God would zap him for doing this. But God had had enough. You guys have neglected my word. Oh, fine. The Philistines, they do their own thing. But I expect you guys to follow the book of instructions I gave you. And since you've compromised, and now it's leading to greater compromise and more compromise, i got to put an end to this. And though I know you see God's wrath and his severity in this passage, remember this, when there were people in the city of Beth Shemesh, looking into the ark, he killed 70 in one day, God did for their irreverent act. So we ought to praise God. God only took one person out. He could have taken out the whole parade of 30,000. But God says, David, wake up. David, you're not doing this right. David, you're compromising. So God reaches down, and with the sacrifice of one man, God says, hey, everybody, stop your partying. And much like that passage in James chapter 4, where James pleads with people who are in compromise, and he says, let your laughter be turned to mourning, let your joy be turned to gloom. What's he saying? He's saying some of us are so busy being happy, and God is so busy being upset with us, we got to at some point have God break through into our joy and say, that's enough. You're listening to Pastor Mike Fabares on Focal Point, and we're discussing how small compromises can lead to bigger and bigger sins. We'll continue with this important topic again tomorrow. To share this message with a friend, go to focalpointradio.org. Look for the message called Finding Joy in Serving a Dangerous God. Well, whether today is your first time listening or you've faithfully tuned in since our first broadcast in 1998, we're so grateful you've chosen to spend time digging into God's Word as we mine the depths of 2 Samuel chapter 6. At Focal Point, we believe the accurate teaching of Scripture is our stable anchor in the raging storms of life. That's why this ministry exists. The attacks on God, the Bible, and Christianity are strategically intensifying, and we want you and everyone else who listens to be equipped with the truth in order to stand firm against a world that compromises and distorts. Your financial and prayer support helps keep Focal Point on the air, reaching thousands of people every day with the light and truth of Christ. In addition to producing this daily program, Focal Point also provides biblical tools like weekly devotional emails and practical Bible teaching resources. This month's featured book is called The Essential Scriptures. To request your copy of this helpful reference handbook, call 888-320-5885. 
A copy is yours when you give a year-end gift of any amount to Focal Point. Again, that's 888-320-5885. Or go to focalpointradio.org. You can also write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. And by the way, did you receive your special gift from Pastor Mike and Focal Point yet? We created a magnet called Daily Petitions from the Lord's Prayer to help you stay focused on God each and every day this next year. We hope it will act as an encouragement to you, as well as a reminder to pray. If you haven't received your magnet yet, be sure to fill in the form at focalpointradio.org slash magnet. That's focalpointradio.org slash magnet. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us again tomorrow as we continue studying happiness and Christianity. That's coming up Tuesday, right here on Focal Point. Hi, Pastor Mike here. God's Word promises it'll never return void. So I wonder, how is God's Word moving in your heart right now? Drop us a line. Let us know. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to be praying for you here. Just go to focalpointradio.org and then be sure to join us again tomorrow right here as we continue to explore the depths of Scripture. We'll see you then. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.